Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly panel podcast entitled Could This Be Stagflation? It is the 14th of October. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Niall MacDonald, Alex Byrne and Bushra Ahmed. Soaring energy prices have added to this year's list of inflationary pressures. We've already seen supply chain bottlenecks and labour shortages. All of this is pushing producer prices higher. At the same time, the Delta variant and falling consumer confidence have caused growth forecasts to be cut. It's a toxic combination. Given declining growth and rising prices, it's hard not to diagnose a bout of stagflation. Today, we'll take a look at current economic indicators and signals from the markets. And looking further out, we'll discuss how investment in the energy transition could not only alleviate some of these inflationary pressures, but also boost economic growth. Niall, could I start by asking you to outline these slow burn inflationary pressures we've seen so far this year? Good morning, Lorna. Um, Yes, throughout 2021, we've seen a trend of higher inflation in the economic data, in comments from companies and earnings calls, and also been priced into markets by some of the metrics we analyse here in the Arcatas investment team. I grouped them into three blocks, really. Um, One, supply chain bottlenecks. Two, consumer-induced responses to the COVID pandemic. And three, semiconductor shortages. With regards to supply chain bottlenecks, supply chains have been impacted negatively by COVID, with goods just taking longer to transport due to health and safety protocols for handling and packaging. Also, labour shortages due to workers contracting or even their loved ones having to take time off work is slowing things down. And on top of that, we've seen some isolated incidents exasperating the problem like the ever-given container ship that blocked the Suez Canal in March, uh, and also certain ports uh, closing sporadically due to COVID outbreaks. Secondly, consumer-induced responses to the COVID pandemic. For example, second-hand car prices have rose significantly as people did not want to take public transport and were buying more cars. Also, spurges in retail sales from stimulus checks were all contributing to strong consumer demand during the year. And then a savings glut from 2020. With people stuck at home, there was an accumulation in the US of approximately 1.6 trillion in excess savings. So when we had this reopening, we experienced the the post-opening bounce in the US earlier in the year. And we've also seen some of that begin to hit the European data now. And lastly, and a very important point is semiconductor shortages. So millions of products, cars, washing machines, smartphones, rely on these computer chips known as semiconductors. And it produces at the moment, just can't get enough of these. So there's a supply shortage across the board, which is leading to price increases. That's very helpful. Thank you. Back to energy, though. We've seen a steady climb in oil prices throughout the year. But in recent weeks, this has been eclipsed by the surge in natural gas and coal prices. What's behind these particular price spikes? Well, there are a number of factors at play here, from Russian supply bottlenecks to a lack of wind, would you believe, in the North Sea. But even before the spike, we have seen that gas was in short supply. We had a prolonged European winter, which meant European nations ran down their reserves, leaving stocks at about 25% below the historical average. Then Norway and Russia, which supply nearly 50% of Europe's gas, encountered some challenges. So Norway has had to delay um, some delivery because pipelines are under works and they're currently working on improving companies' infrastructure throughout the country. Um, And then a fire at a plant in Siberia and a brutal winter really strangled Russia's output. But there's also lack of alternatives. So higher demand for gas from in Asia and wind turbines, which also generate 10% of Europe's power, slowed due to an unusually still summer. 
So this then also had a knock-on impact where energy producers looking to switch to coal, but there also has been strong demand from China for coal, which has pushed up prices there. Yes, it's an interesting combination. And if we look at gasoline prices in the US, for example, they're reported to be 50% higher than they were at the start of the year. Alex, that's leaving President Biden in something of a bind. It is, especially given he likes to stress his green credentials. But on the face of it, it doesn't really sit happily with his demands for OPEC to put more oil to keep prices down. But in reality, it doesn't really seem to be much of a choice for him. In terms of the midterms, the elections that are coming up in November next year, the driving season in the summer in the US next year is going to be critical for those midterm elections. So he really needs the inflation prices to come back in and reduce by then. Part of this is the renewable transition, still suffering from the same issues that we have in Europe and elsewhere in terms of infrastructure and the the need for that to improve. Um, Bear in mind that a lot of this is in the 3.5 trillion infrastructure that's trying to make its way through Congress and the House currently. If we look at electric car sales in the US on the on the other side of things, they're half of what they are in Europe and about a third of what they are in China. Within the US, half of that is in one state, though, in California, which is already strongly democratic. So to keep his electorate, especially the ones that he needs to win happy, they need to keep driving and they need petrol cheap at the moment. Yes, indeed. And Bushra, as Niall alluded to there, ironically, it's the rising share of renewables in the energy matrix has, has made its own contribution to price rises this year. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, absolutely, Norla. The current energy market disruption is reported to be due to a combination of factors, right? So including the recovery from the pandemic, weather conditions like Lyle was alluding to, and significant gas supply outages. These factors, predictably, have also affected renewable energy prices. So, for instance, periods of low wind, like Niall was mentioning, resulted in wind turbines losing their productivity for some time. This exacerbated the supply shortages, in turn increasing prices. It is worth keeping in mind that we will see more progress and advancements in the sector, such as through use of technology, which can improve the supply and help overcome some of the predictable challenges, such as through storing energy. Now, it's useful to know. And back to you then, Niall. We've talked about inflationary pressures, but we've also seen growth indicators slipping off their recent highs. I'm thinking about global PMI data there. The government bond markets have been trying to pick a path through sometimes contradictory data. What are those bond markets signalling to us now? Yes, Lorna. We frequently discussed on this podcast how we have seen global growth forecasts throughout the year being revised down and momentum in the macro data softening. Just on Tuesday, the IMF published its World Economic Outlook and lowered its growth forecast to 5.9% for the year. I think rising yields over the last month need to be borne in the context of the journey in 2021. In Q1, rates moved higher very fast. A speculative positioning put upward pressure on yields as investors tried to price in inflationary and bond issuance dynamics related to the recovery. Into the second half, growth forecast slowed um, and strong demand from yield-hungry investors caused a rally in bond prices and pushing yields down over the next five to six months. I believe that this rally was overdone as real yields, and that's the interest rate minus inflation, were at multi-decade lows. Rates of minus 3% have not been experienced since the 1970s. I think, you know, growth forecasts are still very high in a historical context. You know, as I mentioned, the IMF at 5.9% is still very much above trend. Inflation dynamics appear a little stickier, though, than anticipated. And comments from the Fed on tapering and being more hawkish is causing interest rates to adjust higher. Indeed, I think we're seeing more comment on inflation. Um, the IMF has recently warned central banks to be, quote, very, very vigilant on inflation risks. 
and they should take early action if price pressures prove persistent. Yes, and Alex, on that point, it's perhaps worth a quick review of where the world's central banks are currently. Several of the smaller banks, such as Norway, New Zealand, South Korea, have already raised their interest rates. Would you expect liftoff from the major central banks soon? The major banks have all recently moved, not physically the rates, but the expectations have. So inflation has risen globally and generally stayed at those high levels in in most regions in the advanced economies. And the underlying elements which have affected them appear short term on the face of it, but it's difficult to say that they will revert to their normal levels over the short term. If we look at the individual banks, the Bank of England has recently given clearer signals that a move could come before Christmas, just given the difficulty in the UK. The ECB, I guess, would like to try and complete PEPP before raising rates, regardless in September. They brought forward market expectations in their modelling to say that there would be potentially two rises within two years, a year earlier than was expected by the market. The US, around half of the central bank governors now have individually brought forward their expectations that they could raise rates as early as next year, depending on the recovery and how that pans out. And then the Bank of China, with facing more idiosyncratic issues with growth slowdown and property crisis, um, will need to be more vigilant in maintaining liquidity. So the likelihood of them raising rates on in the short term might be slightly more further out than the other developed economies. So now, all in all, could this characteristic fixation on inflation potentially choke off the growth recovery? Are we indeed looking at a period of stagflation? Well, Lorna, we believe that inflation pressures now appear to be a little bit more firm But our view of the world is more consistent with a reflationary rather than a stagflationary environment. As I mentioned, global growth is expected to be higher than historical averages. And we believe inflation pressures are transitory. Supply chain pressures should abate. And we're also coming to the end of the pandemic. So I'd say in summary, we don't believe that we're coming to a stagflationary environment similar to what was experienced in the 1970s. Could you then briefly outline how our tactical asset allocation is set in the face of this rather problematic backdrop? Sure, great question. In line with our reflationary view, we believe interest rates will go higher and our underweight government bonds and interest rate sensitive securities in our portfolios. We are neutral in equities as we have experienced a strong rally and believe it prudent not to take additional equity risk at this time. But within our equity portfolios, We have tilted towards value or cyclical areas of the stock market, which should benefit from higher yields and positive GDP growth. Lastly, we remain overweight on high yields, largely due to low projected default rates and the higher expected return that this asset class offers. Thank you for that. Bushra, if I could ask you to wrap up our discussion today with a rather longer term view, the commitments from governments to meet a target of net zero emissions by 2050 imply huge levels of investment in sustainable energy production. Could you give us some idea of the scale of this? This is a very timely question. So the IEA, International Energy Agency, just published its flagship World Energy Outlook report for the year. According to IEA's analysis, even if all the government's current net zero pledges were implemented in full and on time, the world would still only achieve 20% of the emissions cut by 2030 that is needed to meet the 2050 net zero goal, and that would still take us higher than a 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise. This is why investment in clean power needs to triple in the next decade to be able to at least try to stay within the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase, which is laid out in the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. To give you some numbers, Forecast is that energy investment will need to rise to $5 trillion a year to achieve the net zero goals for 2050, compared to the $2 trillion today. The hope is that there will be further policy action on this at and post COP26. 
That's interesting. And these levels of investment could in themselves boost economic activity. Is it possible that broadening energy sources into more sustainable areas could in fact also smooth prices over time? Definitely. The expectation is that it will provide a boost to global annual GDP growth. This will imply green jobs and considerable economic activity, potential channels of fiscal stimulus, all aiming to really build back better. And yes, there is a sense that the increased supply of clean power will help to mitigate the risk of extreme volatility in energy markets in the future. The one thing to remember, though, Lorna, is with all of these sustainable energy sources, the potential for the inclusion of gas and potentially nuclear in the long term to be able to smooth the overall energy sources will still be a factor. So if we look at what we've got at the moment, there is potential for that um, price volatility to remain in some regard. A very useful point. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna.